Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is the co-founder of SETI, an internationalization company. At age 17, he moved from Brazil and at 21 became a digital nomad, having been to more than 20 countries on four continents since then. He specializes in special economic zones and charter cities and is an ambassador for the Free Private Cities Foundation and head of internationalization at the Adrianopoli Group, a business intelligence firm focused on special jurisdictions. Please welcome to the show, Francisco Letve. Francisco, how are you? I'm doing great, Mikel. Great to be here. Well, I am very happy to have you here. You and I have been friends for a couple of years now, and we've gone back and forth on Telegram a thousand times, and we run in a lot of the same circles for the free private cities and charter cities and these types of different organizations. So it's very interesting to have you on the show today, and I'm very much looking forward to picking your brain about all of these types of things. So why don't you first start and take a minute and walk us through your backstory. How did you get involved in this? How did you decide that this was going to be your passion where you wanted to focus your work? All right. So quick rundown. I am from Brazil. I'm Brazilian. Lived there most of my life. At age 17, I moved to Austria to study business informatics in Linz, capital of Upper Austria, nice small town. And during my studies, I already became a libertarian. I actually went to Austria because I liked Austrian economics. And I thought that, oh, wow, yeah, we're going to learn Mises in in the university, right? Completely wrong. But I still ended up networking a lot with the people in, in Germany and Austria that are in these Austrian and libertarian circles. And from that, I ended up working with the Free Cities Foundation. I saw a job posting that required a German speaker an English speaker. And I was like, okay, right, perfect. That's myself. I can do both. And that's how I got into this field. That was 2018. And then since the last two years, I've also been working directly in the same field as you, but for a Brazilian and Portuguese speaking audience. So that was through our mutual friend, Christoph Heuermann, who is also from the Free Cities Foundation as an ambassador. So that's the two main things that I, I work in life internationalization, flag theory, and on the other hand, special economic zones, which go pretty well together. Absolutely. Now, I think we did get introduced to one another from 
Christoph, if I'm thinking back a couple of years ago, and now we run in so many of the same circles with the free private cities, I'm also an ambassador for them and for a lot of the other organizations that fit in the space. I think you do it more as a full-time thing and are certainly more of an expert than I am. So I'm, I'm really excited today to kind of pick your brain and discuss some of the different projects and what you have seen in your experiences. But I think this is going to be a really fun conversation today. Same here. No, it's a topic that speaks very close to my heart, right? Because free cities is not exactly revolutionary because you already have many examples of them through history. But I think they're the best way to apply libertarian ideas because libertarians, the whole beef with government is that, oh, this is coercive, right? This is forcing something upon people. And with private cities, with free cities, you have the possibility of creating a voluntary system of government. And that's what got me into it originally. That what really hooked me into the idea. And now I also like it because of the, all the other aspects, right? How you, they can help your business, how you can pay less taxes, how free zones can help you move to different countries. So there's a really a whole range of applications for special economic zones. Well, I think I've said it probably a thousand times on this show, but it's worth repeating. I mean, the entire program and my entire work is about freedom. That is the underlying theme that connects every single one of our episodes together is freedom. Now, I consider myself a libertarian, but I consider myself a libertarian with a small L. And what I mean by that is I have no idea what's going on in the LP and the Libertarian Party. I don't even think about libertarianism as a political vehicle at all. I really think of it as a North Star, you know, the non-aggression principle and its sister component, personal responsibility are the morals and the ethics that I lead my life by. Now, there are many, many programs out there and, and people who work in the field of libertarianism, but are only talking about the theory. I really always try to focus on the practical aspects of it. And I think that the special economic zones and the free private cities and all of these types of things that that encompasses really is the practical sense of libertarianism. This is taking the theory and making it real life, putting it into the real world. What it would be like if we organized humanity in a non-coercive manner. How would that look? What would the rules be? What would the laws be? How would we enforce these without using coercion and violence and all of these types of things? So it has been a project of mine for several years to understand, and I'm constantly learning about it. And I think it is some of the most exciting things that are happening in the world right now. Absolutely. I completely agree there. And I think Another fascinating thing that happens when you start studying these examples is that a lot of things that are, you know, still on the theory when people are discussing, I don't know, politics online, they're like, oh, no, this could never happen. The private sector could never do this. And then you start looking at the examples and, oh, wait, you already have zones that are using, you know, private arbitration courts to settle disputes like the DIFC in, in Dubai, or you already have, you know, whole private neighborhoods and cities that where the infrastructure is manage, finance, develop privately. So a lot of these things that people still have in their minds, they're like, oh, no, this could never exist. This would never work in practice. They already exist. You can take a look right here. Yeah, it's probably about three weeks ago. I was on a private call with a group of gentlemen, and one of them was Walter Block, who I think is an absolute amazing mind, just one of the most monstrous minds in libertarianism. And I've read so much of his work. And I thought it was so interesting to get his opinion on these things. But I was on a group call with him. There's probably, I don't know, a dozen of us or something like that. And halfway through, he stopped everyone. And he said, you know what, 
This call is not for me. And I'm going to tell you why. I don't deal with the practical side of libertarianism. I only deal with the theory side. And I said to him, you are absolutely right. I mean, we're dealing with the practical side of things. So very politely, as a true gentleman, he just excused himself from the call and he left. But I thought, you know, it's quite interesting because he's 100% right. What we deal with is the real life side of these types of things. My work focus is not on the theory of any of this. It is only on the practical sense. So I'm kind of curious from your side, what are the big projects in this space that you think really have legs, things that are really up and coming, things that you're working on that you're excited about? Okay, I think the biggest example we could use for you know a very advanced and very autonomous free zone, a special economic zone, would be Prospera in Honduras. I think this is the one that is also most seen in the media whenever people are talking about private cities, about these kinds of projects, they often mention Prospera. Prospera is a ZEDI in Honduras. So ZEDI is a special economic zone framework that Honduras enacted. The acronym is Zona de Empleo y Desarrollo Económico, so a zone for development and job creation. And these zones are the most autonomous that you have from all the 70 countries that have zone regimes, right? They can basically create their own law in all matters except for criminal. They're still under Honduras criminal law. And it has to be respecting the constitution and the international treaties of Honduras. So they can't do any human rights violations, for example. But besides that, you know, business law, building law, tax law, everything else, is up to them to decide, you know, how do we want to best create this? What is the most competitive system that we can create here? And, you know, you're already seeing some of that competition. You already have three of these Zaddies approved in Honduras. You have Prospera in the island of Roatan. You have Ciudad Morazan and Orquídea in the mainland. And they all have different systems. They all have different regulations. And we're now seeing, you know, which one will be most successful. And this is the one that you're most excited about? Because I think that there's so many problems there right now with the political situation. I don't know. A lot of people are not turning their backs on it, but are being very, very cautious with this project. What's your opinion? Oh, for sure. So I cite it as the example of the most advanced zone, not exactly the most successful, because you know you already have a lot of zones that are established and they're making money and they already exist for decades, right? This is more of a startup kind of project. It's something innovative. It's something that is groundbreaking, and it also has a bigger risk with it. From what I've heard from the people in Honduras and the lawyers and the people I've been talking to there, you know, the current government hasn't really shut down the Zetes or tried to stop them or from doing anything. But they're also not issuing any official statement that, oh, we recognize the validity of the Zeti law, right? Because just for context for the people that are listening, a opposition government came in place from Xiomara Castro, who is a socialist. And one of her main agendas for her election was, yeah, we're going to repeal these colonialist Zedis. And they did repeal the law. That vote is yet to be confirmed next year. But officially, there are a couple of treaties, a couple of documents that guarantee the rights of the Zedis for another 50 years. So the question is, will Honduras respect these rights or will they not? And that's the current standstill, so to say. Do we have a time frame on when we might get some type of resolution on that? So the Prosper team already sent a couple of inquiries, like official public inquiries, demanding a response from Honduras. And I don't remember exactly what the timeline was there. I think a couple months or a year until Honduras has to give an answer. So that's still up in the air. Well, because I had Peter Young on the show earlier this year, 
And we were also talking about Prospera. He was saying that the assumption would be if they do not reply to this, that it's a positive and they will respect the 50 years. And that's kind of the strategy. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. I'm not sure if I would want to base you know, my entire investment or my living conditions or anything like that on an assumption. I mean, I'm fully rooting for Prospera and, and I think it's an amazing project. Part of me also thinks that it might be a good learning experience for other projects going forwards. And even if we don't succeed with Prospera in getting exactly what we want, it's going to be the blueprint and the template for other projects in the world. And maybe we will get a little bit further than we did with this one. Yeah, the lessons learned are there. You know, there's a lot of things to be learned from Prospera. And there's also the platform which they already developed, right? They already created this e-governance platform and the laws and the code for all these systems that are now in place. And, you know, if Prospera closes, they can go to another jurisdiction and try to implement that. So it's not like all is lost. But if you're an entrepreneur and you want to create a business in a special economic zone, you can probably go somewhere where if you have a lower risk appetite, you can maybe go to Uruguay or Portugal or the UAE, where they already have zones running for many, many years. And, you know, there's a more stability than in Honduras. Yeah. Once again, I think that it's sad that the socialist government has come on and they've decided to put such a beautiful thing that's been created on the chopping block and point fingers that this is the problem, which is kind of hilarious when you look at the situation in Honduras, that they're going to blame entrepreneurs coming in and carving off a very small section of one of the islands and a couple of small places on the mainland, that this is the thing that's going to ruin the country. I mean, we're already talking about a country that has quite a bit of poverty there, not a lot of opportunities. And I think it's worthwhile to try something else. And if we can look at other examples of successful zones and deregulations, places like Hong Kong and Singapore are the obvious ones, but other countries as well, we can see the trajectory went through deregulation and where this leads. I'm kind of curious, though. You mentioned Uruguay. You mentioned the UAE. You mentioned a few other places. Maybe we can spend a bit of time and dig into some of the other zones that are out there in the world, maybe some of the differences between them and what someone might want to learn or research or read about if this was something they were interested in. Sure. So I think the common denominator for most zones is that there's some fiscal incentives so in some cases, you're going to have lower corporate tax rate or no withholdings for dividends or no VAT or no import tariffs. That's the biggest one you have almost everywhere. No import tariffs for capital goods and, and that kind of thing. So that is pretty standard. Degree to which you have the tax benefits varies. So, for example, in the EU, you're not going to have a tax-free zone, but you can still have 5% corporate tax in Madeira, which compared to Portugal's 21%, I think, is quite substantial. Right. And well, in places like Uruguay and UAE, you can get a full 0%. But besides the tax advantages, there's also a number of other regulatory benefits that you can get in zones. Right. So one of them would be regulatory simplifications and one stop shops, where for the companies in the zones, they have one place, either physical or digital, where you can get all permits and all all the bureaucratic procedures that you need done, you know, from a single point of contact and generally not taking more than a couple of days. So the regulatory simplification is nice. And you also have some zones that create entire new markets, entire new geo-arbitrage opportunities that wouldn't exist otherwise. So 
a nice example here would be in Lesotho, where they have zones for cannabis and South Africa too. They created special economic zones for the cannabis industry where you can do create weed products and plantations or in India, in the Genome Valley, where they have a zone for biomedical experimentation, right? So if you want to create a new treatment that would not be allowed in the US because of the FDA, you can go there and experiment new things, right? So there are some zones that open up entire new markets. Well, I did see it when I lived in the UAE because throughout Dubai and Abu Dhabi, there are so many of these special economic zones and they would really be focused on individual things. Some of them had to do with the aviation industry and were very close to the airport. And some of them were doing renewable cities and smart cities. And there were special zones there. I'm thinking of ones in particular in Abu Dhabi. That was kind of a melting pot or, or a hotspot for a, light, a lot of that type of technology that would be brought in. And it was easier to get work permits and easier to do incorporation of the business and hiring the employees all through there. And they even had a university on site and it was all focused around this one idea. So I think that that is an amazing concept because it's one thing right now for remote work. And, and I'm a massive fan of remote work. But there is so much to be said by being shoulder to shoulder with other entrepreneurs and other thinkers and other builders, something magic that happens in person opposed to having to do everything virtually. Yeah, that's also part of the, the interest in zones is that these areas, because they have all these incentives, and so they're usually these poles for industry, right? They have a very high concentration of either specific industries, like in the case of the UAE, or even industries that are related to each other in different ways, like that are downstream and upstream of each other. And then they have this synergy and are operating inside a zone. So you also see a lot of that. And maybe another aspect that is, is worth pointing out is how they can also help open up new economies or well, not entire economies, but at least allow you to do business in places that would otherwise be impossible. So when people think of North Korea or Cuba, you generally think of, okay, this is a socialist government, this is completely closed, there is you know, no capitalism here at all. But if you look at both these countries, they have special economic zones. Korea has a bunch of them, and Cuba also has, I think, one or two in Port Mariel. But in Razon, South, in North Korea, you have people working for South Korean companies. You know, you have people doing business in a communist state through these special economic zones, which is kind of funny because it's an admission of the government that, yeah, what we do in the country is not working, but at least let's, let's create a small spot where people can do the right thing. That's funny. You know, I've been to North Korea. I did not have a chance to visit anything like that. Maybe it was not around at that time. I probably went 10 years ago now at this point. But it is funny. You know, also when we look at China, people think of China as you know, a communist country. But actually, it would surprise them to know that some of the fastest growing and the largest economic zones are actually in China. And I visited them in Shenzhen and Guangzhou and stuff like this. And it's like stepping into the future. Like this is not a developing country by any means. This is not third world, certainly not second world. I mean, it is the future and so far advanced. And you go back 50 years, 60 years ago, and it was just a small, sleepy fishing village. And now tens of millions of people live there and are doing business every day. Yeah, what's crazy about China is the extent to which they apply these zones. I think I read a statistic recently that 
over 90 or 92% of Chinese municipalities are either inside a special economic zone or have a zone inside them. So you have them in the whole country. They recently just made the whole island of Hainan into a zone, the entire place. I heard this, yeah. So they have, you know, not only stuff for business, but also for tourism and for people living there. So the personal income tax rate now is reduced to 15% for a couple of years when you move there. And you get visa-free access for 30 days, something that in China is, you don't get it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my wife is from China, so I have a special visa to China that allows me, it's a 10-year visa to go in and out of China. But I remember three years ago, I took my mother there and she couldn't get a visa because she was living in the UAE with us, but she didn't have her residency. So they wanted her to go back to Canada to be able to get her Chinese tourist visa. And she couldn't process it in the UAE because she didn't have her, her residency there at that time. So what we did instead was we bought her an onward ticket and she had seven 72 hours in the country. So she came with us on a trip there, spent 72 hours. I think it was 72, but it could have been 96 or something like this. But it was a very short amount of time and then continued on. And we were in the country for another week or two, something like this. And now with the changes out on the island and allowing tourists to come is amazing. I mean, that is just not something that's traditionally been part of Chinese culture or history. Yeah, I hope that's a big success and they just decide to do it for the whole country, right? That's the best case scenario of special economic zones. It's when you have the whole country being transformed or you have zones being created all over the country so that there is, you know, real access to these opportunities. I think the bad example, you know, the bad apples is when the opposite happens, when you have zones being created precisely to avoid reforming the whole country, like in Cuba, or in an even more ridiculous case, when you have the whole country being put down to benefit the zone. I have an, a terrible anecdote from Brazil here. <laughs> okay, let's hear it. It's from this year. So Brazil has two special economic zones regimes, one in the export processing zones and the other one being the free zone in Manaus. So Manaus, for those who don't know Brazilian geography, is deep in the Amazon. It's logistically a very bad place to be settling industries. And because the Brazilian government wanted to, you know, bring more people and bring more industries and bring more uh, economic activity to the area, they created the Manaus Free Zone, where there's a number of tax benefits and regulatory benefits as well, right? But what happened in the long term? So Manaus is a public zone. It's not a private zone, worthy of mention. And this year, President Bolsonaro wanted to lower the ICMS, which is a kind of VAT that you have in Brazil, on basically all products. And the politicians from Manaus were like, oh no, but wait, one of the main advantages of the Manaus free zone is that we have this lowered ICMS, right? If they do this, our zone is not going to be competitive anymore. So what did they do? They go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court vetoed the reduction, the, the tax reduction on all <laughs> products that are created inside the Manaus free zone. So what did you have here? You have all of Brazil paying higher taxes so that the zone will get more money. It's a, it's a complete inversion of what we're looking for, right? You want the zone to benefit the country, but here you have the country paying for the zone. Well, leave it to Brazilian bureaucracy to screw up something like this. I mean, we were in Brazil for six months last year living in Brazil, and my son was born in Brazil, and Brazil holds a very special place to my heart. And and I have many Brazilian listeners and staff and friends and everything, and I love Brazil. Oh, dear 
God, the bureaucracy. What is going on in your country? Like, it's just unbelievable. I have no response to this. (laughs) 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 By the way, you were in Floripa a lot of time, right? Yeah, we spent the... Well, I've been to Brazil seven times now at this point. I think that was my fifth time. We spent pretty much the entire six months in Floripa. Cool. Did you get to visit Cidade Pedra Branca? I don't think so. Ah, man, you you should do this next time. This is a private city slash neighborhood project that is, what, less than an hour away from from Floripa. And they're a super successful example. So Cidade Pedra Branca was a project like starting in the 90s where this family had a farm and they wanted to, no, let's create a a city with, you know, new urbanism practices and let's, let's make this a very livable, creative place to live. And they financed, developed, built the whole neighborhood privately. And the place rocks. It's very safe. It has like 99% sewage coverage compared to Brazil's, I think, 50%. It tops on basically all indicators. And the real estate price there, it's outside of Florianópolis. It's in Palhoça, which is not that valued of a region. But the real estate prices inside the private city are just like in the center of Florianópolis, even a bit higher. So that also shows that if you build something that is attractive to the market, if you build something looking for people to live there, then you know you get financial benefits from that as well. Amazing. Well, we have a mutual friend, Larissa. Well, I'll have to talk to her next time we go down and get her to take us out there or something like that. Her and, and Alan have to take us down. That'd be pretty neat. Yeah, for sure. It's really worth a visit. Most of Brazil, like the cities are, are not so walkable as in Europe. Our urban planning was very modernistic in the 20th century. So you have a lot of these car intensive cities. And there they decided to create a place that, no, let's make a a walkable city where you can reach everything in the center. And it's been working quite well. Well, in Floripa, you know, we spent a lot of time in Jure and people are saying like, why do you want to live there? It's so expensive. The prices are like double of everywhere else. Well, one of the reasons is we can walk everywhere there. You can walk to every single restaurant, cafe, the beach. There's tons of activities and there's so much stuff going on. And it's like, well, because I can walk everywhere here. We rented a car while we were there, but to drive across the island can be quite a bit. And the traffic is less there than in Rio or in Sao Paulo. It's a considerably smaller place, but I'm an avid pedestrian. I mean, I've traveled for 20 some odd years and visited over a hundred countries. And I like to walk everywhere that I can. And any type of neighborhood or city or area that's based on something like that has my vote. Yeah, it's, it's my favorite way of interacting with a city because when you're inside the car, you're not open to the randomness of the city. But when you're walking, you are, right? You can bump into someone you know, you can, oh, I see a nice restaurant. Let me just walk in or there's some street show or whatever. It's just... There's so much more life when you're walking through a city. Of course, this is better when it's in a walkable area, a walkable neighborhood. Of course. For me, it is also, though, that I feel like I have full control. If we're in a car, we have to take an Uber or something like that. I have no idea what the traffic is going to be like. I have no idea how long the Uber will take. Maybe the car will break down. Maybe he has to stop for gas. So if I have to meet someone or do something, you know, those are things that are outside of my control. And as a libertarian, personal responsibility is number one for me. So if I know it's going to take me 37 minutes to walk, then I can plan around that. Then I know exactly how long it will take. There's very little that is going to happen and get in the way. But now if I rent a car and it's going to say it's going to be six minutes, 
and I leave it to 10 minutes before to leave and anything happens, or even if I leave 15 minutes before anything happens, I can screw that up pretty easily. So I just love walking. Anyways, not to get on a tangent of walking on our cities, <laughs> uh, our conversation of private cities. I don't know how that happened, but it is interesting to discuss the differences in these types of areas, you know, because normally people are only talking about the tax benefits, but really you can see that these types of areas can have a thousand different applications when you deregulate and when things are created more in the benefit of the people who will be living there. Yeah, I think it's also important to you know show the impact that these projects can have because you know there's probably a lot of people that are listening to you right now, Mikhail, who are libertarians and who would like to do something and they get discouraged when they see that, oh no, you know, to create a special economic zone, you'd have to change the law of the country or you'd have to have a mega project. And then, oh, okay, that I can't create a, a freedom community. But in reality, you can still do a lot, even if you don't have the you know regulatory autonomy. In the case of Pedro Branca, it's actually a, a nice example for the governance side as well. They created this private neighborhood, right? And they implemented a lot of best practices. And then because of their success the city, the municipality of Palhoça changed their Plano Diretor, which is a kind of a building zoning code, to incorporate a lot of the best practices from the city. And same thing for the fiscal side. So, of course, municipalities can't change much in terms of taxes, but they can change some things. And the city, they were looking to attract more startups, more more people. And then, you know, the private city lobbied to do a tax reform, and now Palhoça is fiscally more attractive than Florianópolis. So you're seeing also a number of startups moving to Palhoça. So like when you create a project that has impact at the municipal level, you can start creating a real impact on the municipal level as well, right? If you become a big enough entity that you can lobby for certain things, then you can you know, have a real impact on the governance side too. Well, we also saw this with Honduras as well. Now, they had Prospera, and now I know lots of entrepreneurs, I think lots of mutual friends with you who have gone out there and bought adjacent islands or plots of land or acres or farms of properties next to it and trying to get included in this special economic zone because they saw the benefits, they believed in the project, and they saw the direction of how things could go. So things kind of grew organically by people participating. Exactly. That is one of the main points in successful zone programs. It's the creation and location, right? If you look at the programs that are most unsuccessful, it's generally these programs that, you know, oh, you're going to have, I don't know, X number of zones that are determined by the federal government, and they're going to put it all in regions that are logistical nightmares and that are undeveloped. And, you know, because, oh, we want to help develop these undeveloped areas. But maybe there's a reason that they're undeveloped, that it's just very hard to move goods here, or it's very just outside of the way of any economic route. And the zones that are more successful are the ones that have this flexibility, right, in their creation. And this is something that is a good point for Brazil now. I said the bad, now I want to say something good too. <laughs> uh, there was a reform of the export processing zones regime, and they changed the zones can be created before it was only the federal government. And now it's the federal government, the states, the municipalities, or the private sector. If you're a, you know, a company, if you're an, an industry owner, you can request the creation of a zone if you present a business plan. And since then, you already have more than five, 
five or six zones that are already activating or requesting creation, which is, you know, really cool for Brazil. We'll just take a quick break. If you guys are on my newsletter, then you probably have heard me talking about my buddy Sven Lawrence, who runs Undervalued Shares. It is an amazing newsletter. He has a free newsletter and a paid newsletter, and I am absolutely obsessed with it. He has his weekly dispatch, which I really want you guys to check out. If you guys go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash undervalued, you'll be able to sign up for free. Basically, he goes around the world traveling and looking at different companies and writes in-depth research reports on how to get involved in these companies. So this is an equity play. If you're interested in the stock market, if you're already investing in the stock market, then this is a newsletter that you really want to check out. I love his methodology. I love the way that his brain works, and he's really become a good friend. He's actually coming to visit me in a couple of weeks, so hopefully we'll be able to record some special content together as well. We'll be putting it out on the podcast, in our private Facebook group, on social media, on the newsletter, etc. Etc. But in the meantime, I want you guys to check out expatmoneyshow.com forward slash undervalued, all one word, and sign up for his weekly dispatch. It's completely free. I love his work, and I think you will too. Okay, let's jump back into today's interview. So talk to me then a little bit about what someone can actually do in their real life. They agree that these zones have a lot of merit to them. They want to participate. Talk to us maybe from the company formation side, the banking side, the living side, anything that they can actually do to increase their own freedom using these vehicles. All right. So the main use of special economic zones would really be for company formation, right? Most zones are for businesses. You have some zones where you can also live, like the ones in Honduras, uh, but the majority of them are geared towards companies. And that's the focus. So for incorporating in a zone, there's a couple of things you need to be aware of. This varies a lot from country to country. So there's no unified global zone regime, thank God. So a couple of things you need to have in mind if you want to incorporate in a zone, things you need to take a look at. First is if there is any local requirements. So for example, in Uruguay, if you want to create a company in a zone in Uruguay, you need to have at least an office inside the zone and people working from the zone, right? You need at minimum one employee there. So let's say you're a freelancer, remote worker, and oh, I wanna pay zero tax with a company. That's probably not gonna be the easiest option if you're not earning too much because you know just the cost of renting an office and, and getting an employee might be too prohibitive. But of course, if you're not, if you have a bigger operation, then well, that's probably not gonna be an issue. There's also in many zones requirements for a minimum investment that you don't have in the regular companies in that country. So for example, in Portugal, let's say you want to incorporate in Madeira and pay 5% corporate tax inside the EU. There, you also have to hire at least one local employee and you need to do an investment of 75,000 euros in fixed assets. So you also need to put some money into the company. Of course, this example also has counterexamples. There are places where you don't need to make an investment. There are places where you don't need to rent a place. So for example, Georgia has an e-zone that isn't even a physical place, right? It's just a, a virtual special jurisdiction that if you register there, you can also have your company located in the zone and paying less taxes. So these are a couple of things you need to take a look at, but for all of them, there's also counterexamples where you don't have the restrictions. Yeah, because normally I work in the offshore markets 
So we're dealing with IVCs and Caribbean countries and things like that. And with a lot of these places, there's zero tax on it. I mean, I'm not talking about your home country or where you're physically based, but for the corporate side, just to keep things very clean and simple. I'm I'm not giving individual tax advice. But what ends up happening is with a lot of the banking and the ease of business, it's getting more cumbersome working in these tax haven type of countries. So in a lot of times, you actually want to work in a more established country, one that's actually respected where there'll be a lot less questions from any type of the banking or the transferring of funds or how things are set up. It's also the view when you have someone paying you, the invoice. If you have your company in BVI or in Belize or something like that, the person who is sending you money might ask a couple of questions. Now, if you have your company set up in Spain, it's a very established pace or Cyprus or something like this, or we do a lot of work in Singapore, which has a very high standing in the business community. So it can make things easier on a subjective level, even if on objectively, it looks like it's going to be a worse situation having a 5% tax or a 12% tax or 12.5% tax opposed to a zero tax. Yeah. You mentioned people asking questions. That's not even the worst part. The worst part is if you're in a blacklisted jurisdiction and then you're in a, I don't know, a B2B business, you send an invoice and then your client can't deduct that as an expense because it's coming from a tax haven. That is a big one. You're not going to be able to do business. Well, Estonia and Panama, I've had this problem before with their e-visas. And then I've had clients in Estonia before who've tried to pay me. And now they've gotten in trouble and you know it's messed up things for them because I'm in Panama. I'm like, but I'm actually in Panama. Like I really live here. I really have companies set up here and really have everything there. I mean, we're seeing this all the time with Panama. For Panama, it's great for North America. For Canadians and Americans, it's very easy to go back and forth and do business. But with the Europeans, they're coming down hard on Panama, which is something you need to think about when you're setting up your business structures and where your invoices or your merchant accounts or or how you're, you're billing people, what that's going to look like. Yeah. Even if you have a real business with real substance, there's still going to be questions asked by the local tax departments, right? And it's not only that part. Zones are a best of both worlds in the sense that you're offshore, like you're paying less taxes, but you're in onshore jurisdictions. So there's the reputation aspect, sure. But there's also, for example, access to more and better banks. Like in the EU, for example, you can have all these fintech banks like Revolut and Wise and you know just these payment processors that you have way less options if you're in, in the Caribbean. And there's also the tax treaties, which if you're a holding company, if you're investing, that is a big deal, right? If you invest in the United States and you, you're getting dividends, for example, into a, a Caribbean company, you're going to have a 30% withholding on all the, in, the dividends and royalties and interest and that kind of thing. But if you're in a country with a double tax treaty, that goes back to 15% or 10% in some cases, or even less, depending on the, on the type of income. So these jurisdictions like the UAE, like Uruguay, like Portugal, have way more tax treaties than the usual tax havens. So it's, it's really a combination of, of a number of factors why you would go onshore instead of offshore. Yeah, I affectionately call it nearshore jurisdictions. I mean, I specialize in the offshore stuff, but over the last 20 years of looking at different things like this, we're really seeing a paradigm shift away from the traditional tax haven type of countries and actually having a tax file number and still 
legally paying zero taxes can be a lot better. And I can give you another example. We were opening a bank account recently, and it's part of CRS, Common Reporting Standards. And they wanted to see a tax file number for everybody involved and of the country that you're a resident in. And it's like, well, I mean, that makes things a little bit challenging. So I actually have some company formations where we do pay taxes and we have things set up so that we have a tax file number. Even on the back end, we can expense a lot of things and we can clean things up, you know, once again, completely legally and playing by all of the rules, but they really need to see this. Like they, they won't take, I don't have a tax file number or I go out of Belize or the Caribbean countries and it doesn't exist there. It's like, they don't want to hear that. It doesn't make sense to them. And trying to argue with a bank manager is not going to do you any good. Yeah, especially if you're dealing with Europe and jurisdictions that are more strict when it comes to KYC and anti-money laundering and these kinds of things, then you really need to pay attention. Of course, there's still some countries outside of the CRS where you can open a bank account, like Paraguay, like São Tomé, like Georgia still, or Dominican Republic, but the list gets smaller and smaller every year. Well, I was in Lebanon a couple of weeks ago, and I knew that that was one of the big places that was not signing on for CRS. But you go to the country and they've been removed from SWIFT. The inflation is at like 1,700% a year. Unemployment is at 60%. I mean, the situation there is an absolute mess. And it's like, you know, I, you really wonder how much of it is their own doing and how much of it is bullying for not participating in programs like CRS. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's an interesting thing to look into. Yeah, I think the main problem becomes when these tax havens get popular, right? When they get into the eyes of the authorities, because you have a number of places that are legit tax havens that are not CRS signatories, and they're not on the blacklists. People just don't know of the opportunities. Like, for example, Honduras is not a CRS country, yet it's not on the blacklist of the EU or the OECD, right? But mm -hmm. Panama is. Why? Or Panama is. <laughs> well, they're both territorial tax countries. They're both non-CRS, but... Ah, Panama actually has signed on for CRS, believe it or not. Well, yeah, true. I mean, I, I remember having to sign documents two or three years ago when I got here and started asking them questions about it. And it was basically like, yes, we're signing on for CRS, but... I mean, the actual implementation of it is going to be very, very slow. And I'll tell you a quick story. I remember when I went to open one of the bank accounts here in Panama, and I went there in person to make my initial deposit into the bank. So we did all the paperwork, signed everything. They gave me a sheet of paper. I went to the front desk and I wanted to put in $1,000 or $5,000 or whatever it was. And she has a calculator with a roll of paper on it. And she does all the entries of the cash that she gets via calculator with a paper. And that's what she's logging. There was no computer systems behind the bank. And I was like, yeah, I'm not worried about CRS right now for Panama. Like, first of all, we need to teach people how to use a keyboard and a computer and get those involved in the banking sector here. And then I might look at something like that. Actually, I'll give you one other example of how far Panama is behind. It's how one of the online banking systems, and when you go to sign in, you can see it's like the copyright and the terms and conditions and everything like that at the bottom of the website. It's 2011. 2011 is the last time they've updated these types of things for their online banking. I'm like, you know, this is this is going back a decade. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's so for people who are worried about Panama, I think 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of other things to happen first. You'd expect that the countries that are known for offshore banking would have the most modern banks there are, but no, man. It's like if you look at the banks in Nevis or Cayman Islands, they're all super outdated. The the websites look like trash. And if you go to countries like all of the EU or even Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, they all they all have these fintech online banks, which are you know just so smoothless when when you're doing the online banking but they're not banking destinations you know it's uh, quite a paradox yeah well that's why i like jurisdictions like singapore and now to a lesser degree hong kong but we were working with hong kong for for ages because of the sophistication and the banking and the level of security and the programs that are involved there and even you know if you can af- afford the initial fees to open the bank the ongoing costs are quite low with some of the offshore banks are ridiculously expensive. Yeah, $100 for one transaction. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I've heard that actually losing money on those types of incoming and outgoing transactions because they don't have their own intermediary banks, so they have to use a third party's intermediary banks. So it's taking multiple hops and they keep losing relationships. And because they get looked down on and they're blacklisted, the compliance department is through the roof. It takes up probably... Close to 50% of the staff is just part of the compliance department. It's crazy. So to kind of circle everything back and why we're talking about this is that in these nearshore jurisdictions or in these zetis or special economic zones, if you can have proper banking that has relationships with these zones, you can actually get a much better product and not as much scrutiny by having some form of taxation or tax file number there. Exactly. And in many zones, you also have zero capital controls and things that you would see in South America in many countries. They don't have it in the zones specifically, so you can also you know, use foreign banks and send and receive money from abroad. So on that banking and sending and receiving money part, it's also facilitated. Well, that's a good point about Brazil, trying to send money in and out of Brazil. I have never seen something more cumbersome or a withholding tax I, I think it's a withholding tax just on money leaving the country, just cash to cash. I've had Brazilian clients who have tried to pay me before, and they've had 25% of it taken by the government or in fees. And it's like really speaks to the need of Bitcoin and other types of digital currencies. Yeah, we're competing toe to toe with Argentina to see who's the worst country for remittances. <laughs> it's such a bizarre thing. If you guys haven't done business in Brazil before or tried to do transferring money in and out of the country, it's really shocking. Like I said, I've been doing this type of industry for many years now. And I was surprised when I started to actually live in Brazil and try to do business there. Another one in Brazil, not to pick on your country, but once again, I love Brazil very much. I have a Brazilian child, but the taxes and on technological goods. I remember trying to buy a laptop when I was there and the taxes were over 100% trying to buy a laptop. Over 100%. Francisco, that's nutso. Like, <laughs> that's why you see a lot of tech products in Brazil have the produced in the industrial pole of Manaus. <laughs> that's where they're, they're building the local ones. So it's another point on why these zones can be so important. Exactly. Well, for the good and for the bad, I would say Manaus is the is the bad case. But I, I really have hope on the export processing zones in Brazil 
to start creating a big impact this year and next year because the reform they did last year was just really fantastic. Like they added a lot of, of good points. For example, now in the export processing zones, if you're exporting services or goods, you can use the regulatory code of your client's country. So that is a big innovation, right? You can you don't have to use the Brazilian business law to make your business. Amazing. So talk to me a little bit about Africa. There are many rumors coming out about Africa, and I know certain things, but certain things I am sworn to secrecy about. What can you tell us about special economic zones going up in Africa? Africa is a place that has many special economic zones being built and many uh, private cities really being built. You have Tatu City in Kenya is one example. You have a couple in Nigeria. If you look at Talent Cities, that is a project by one of the big uh, VCs and, and startup guys from Nigeria, Iya Boyeji, and he's creating also he's trying to create a charter city there. Uh, you have Nkwashi in Zambia. That's a satellite city to the capital of Lusaka. And they also are making it a special economic zone. And they already signed an MOU with the government there to try to create a charter city, a, you know, an autonomous city. Actually, the Charter Cities Institute moved recently to Zambia. They now have an office there as well. Man, you have a lot of projects going on. I personally have only been to Morocco and Sao Tome. I spent one and a half, two months in, in each of these countries. They also have special economic zones, but they're not exactly the most autonomous. They still have good opportunities. Well, I've been to Morocco probably a dozen times and for months on end at some of the trips. So I know Morocco very well, and we've spoken about the country and the different cities there many times on the show. But tell me about your experiences in St. Thomas and Principal. So São Tomé and Principe is an island right off the coast of Nigeria, there in the, the Gulf of Guinea. And, you know, it's, I think, three times the size of Floripa, like it's a, a thousand square kilometers and there's 200,000 people. So it's really a, a very small country. This is it's kind of the Cuba of, of Africa. You know, they're still very much behind in a lot of things, but the government there has also been, you know, doing some efforts to attract more investment and doing some reforms as well. So they also have like an, an IBC law. They have a, a free zone law. They have a couple of projects that they're creating. There's a free zone in the South, actually. When I was there, I visited the place there as well that they're trying to create and create a new airport. So that is nice. And overall, there's a couple of opportunities in the country that I would say are the most uh, relevant, which are tourism. You know, they're trying to create a lot of things there and the service is still very low. You know, you don't have many options. You have like two really good hotels. Besides that, there's not really much competition in the island of Santome. You have chocolate and agriculture. You know, the place is super fertile and their chocolate is delicious. <laughs> I really think that's the best chocolate I've, I've had in my life. I'm, I'm not kidding. Santome chocolate is delicious. Besides that, also for remote work, I think it, there's a big opportunity there because, you know, it's an African country, very low wages, very low cost of living. But they have the oceanic cables, you know, that go from France, I think, to South Africa, ex going exactly through the island. So though it's third world, very poor, you have 200 megabyte internet wow. with optic fiber, right? So I think that's also a good opportunity for a remote working destination. How have you seen the safety? What was your experience like there from the safety side? That is, I think, one of the most attractive parts of Sontome. In 
I've already had a lot of people tell me when they were there, like, yeah, man, this is not really Africa. Like, this is something else. Because the crime is just super low, which is generally the case in islands when you only have three flights going out per week. You know, if you steal a car, what are you going to do with it? Just, you know, go around? <laughs> Joyride. <laughs> There's not much to do, right? So it's very safe there. I've walked a lot of times at night in the capital and was super, super fine. I think the murder rate there is like less than a tenth of Brazil, which is, it's overall very safe. Okay. It's one of those countries that has been on my radar for quite a while now. I've done a lot of research. I have not had a chance to visit there. I visited pretty much everywhere else that you mentioned in Africa where there's special zones coming up. I mean, I've been to Nigeria multiple times. I've been to Zimbabwe and Zambia and Kenya and these types of places. So it's kind of interesting on the island front of Africa, what opportunities are there. And we're really seeing that with a lot of the zones that are coming around the world, that there's certain advantages to being on the islands. I think the island nations are also, you know, more dependent on creating these tax attractives and regulatory attractives because their logistics are a bit worse, right? So they have to try to attract people in, in another way. So for example, Cape Verde, they're also creating some special economic zones there. And they recently launched the tax-free nomad visa too, right? So you can stay up to one year there tax-free. So you know, you're seeing a lot of these island nations really trying to compete for your residency, your business. It is so, so important. And I hope that this trend continues with governments thinking of people more as clients opposed to slaves. We've seen over the last two years with countries locking down and these forced lockdowns on people, what it has done to the tourist sector and countries that are so dependent on that have just shriveled up. So anything that you can attract digital nomads and entrepreneurs and people to set up their businesses there, I think is a great leap forward for our movement. Absolutely. And I think that's, that was also one of the attractives of, of Tome. When I was there, it was peak COVID uh, 2021. There were lockdowns across all of Europe and their life was just going as usual. Same thing in Morocco these last months when I was there. I didn't use a mask until I came here to Spain where I am at the moment. You know, it's like life is going on, which is not the case still in many countries, uh, even in 2022. Did you take the ferry over from Tangiers? <laughs> no, I, I took the flight. I, it was financially better to take the flight than the ferry. The ferry was more expensive. But yeah, I stayed a lot of time in Tangiers, like two months. Two I, months in Tangiers? I heard your, your <laughs> podcast with, um, with, I think, Kolya, where you talked yeah, about probably Kolya. I, yeah. I disagree completely, man. Like from- I was there in like 2001. So if Tangiers has turned itself around, then that's amazing. But it was probably 2001 or, or 2000. I'm not even sure. It's like, it's been over 20 years since I've been there. If you're planning to go to Morocco, if you're listening to this right now, from personal experience, Agadir, which is a place that's close to beach and a lot of flight connections. Yeah, it was Portuguese, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It was a Brazil. It's a, a Portuguese fort in there. As well, because I always follow all the different places that the Portuguese were, and because I was learning about it over the years. Yeah, I think there's one in Essaouira as well. Essaouira, I spent a lot of time in, though. That was very nice. A lot of uh, surfers going there and like beach town overall. But from my experience, the north, so Tangiers and Tituan, also very good pick. They're cleaner, they're more developed, have better infrastructure. And also there is the Spanish level. 
that is something really cool. Like I think one of every five or six persons that I talked to, I could interact in Spanish, which, you know, is very good if you don't speak any French, like myself, um, Morocco, they speak French everywhere, but in the North, they also speak a bit of Spanish. I spent most of my time in Fez, which I just thought was the greatest place ever. I just thought that so interesting and like stepping in a time machine and going backwards and just seeing the world in a completely different light. Now, I was in the Sahara. I was in the High Atlas Mountains. I was in Robot and uh, Casablanca. I was, I think I've been to pretty much everywhere in Morocco. I'm trying to think of all of the places. It was a over 20 places that I originally went when I spent a few months there when I was in my 20s. But Fez really stood out for me. That's just such a special place in my heart. Man, that is, along with Marrakesh, Fez is the only other major city that I didn't go to. So now you're making me want to... You didn't go to Marrakesh and you didn't go to Fez. No, I, I did That's the, like the... I did the <laughs> coast route, right? I didn't do the inside okay. route. So I went from Agadir all the way up. So Tagazu, uh, Sawira, Kaza, Rabat, and then Tangier up. So I guess the yeah I liked Asawira as well. I remember being in Asawira, and then there would be little fishmongers, like little fish market on the coast there, and they would all have their fish laid out like these really small ones, and you would be like, "Okay, I want that fish and these prawns and something like that," and then they would cook it right there in front of you and cook up some French fries, and we would just sit there on the coast and just have amazing fresh fish. It was fantastic. Is that still there? Are they still doing that? Man, I did not do that. But the best tagine I had in all of Morocco was in, in Sawira. They got some good food there. I love it. So good. I'm going to laugh at you, though, because the two favorite places that I went to in Morocco, well, Marrakesh is maybe not my favorite, but it's probably the most popular place in the entire country for tourism. And you didn't go to either one of them. Here's the thing. I was in Agadir. And we were deciding, okay, how are we going to go up? And we look at the temperature. It was, what, uh, June, July, 42 degrees in Marrakesh or, you know, beach town 30 something. So sorry, but <laughs> we went the beach way. Sure, sure. There was also this three-tiered waterfall that I remember going to. I can't remember the name of it, but it was maybe a halfway between, I want to say it was halfway between Marrakesh and Essaouira. And I remember going and camping there for a few days. I still have pictures of doing cliff jumping from there. And I think I, we were jumping from probably like 12, 13, 14, 15 meters up, like huge, huge cliffs down the waterfall and coming in. I'm so lucky I didn't break my neck on these things. I have no idea what I was doing. I was absolutely crazy as a kid. I heard of this place. It was recommended by a couple of the Moroccan friends over there. Another good one is Akshur, which is like 40 minutes from Shefshawen. There's a couple of waterfalls and nice river and just overall nice place if you want to go in cold water and relax. Awesome. My major trip to Morocco was 20 some odd years ago. And then I've been back a number of times. I used to work with another marketer and have meetings with him in Casablanca. So went over several times to have meetings and sit down with him and a young mentee of mine before who used to do some work for me. But I didn't have a chance to go back to Marrakesh or back to Fez or anything like that. So those memories are all from 20 some odd years ago. But amazing place. Amazing. Yeah, it's crazy how Africa is... It's absolutely different in North Africa and the rest of it. Like there's zero similarity from, from Marrakesh or, you know, from Tangiers to Santome at all. 
So we went on a bit of a tangent and, and a reminiscent storytelling about Morocco, which I love. But does Morocco have special economic zones? Yeah, they do have special economic zones. There's, I think, basically in every major city. One of the most famous ones and the most, you know, most successful is Tangier Med, which is a bit outside of the airport area of Tangier. A lot of these zones are located near ports and airports to, you know, make the logistics easier. And overall, it's, it's you know, it has a number of tax benefits too. I think it's interesting as a jurisdiction if you have business in the French-speaking world, right, and then you want some qualified workforce that speaks French, but not necessarily having to deal with the uh, labor law or the just the cost of France. Amazing. Super interesting conversation today. It's kind of fun to go around the world and look at the different projects that are going on and, and see how things are progressing. If my listeners want to find out more about what we've been speaking about today, if they want to get a hold of you or follow your work, where can we send them? So my personal account is at friend Litvai in basically every social media, mostly on Twitter though. And for special economic zones, take a look at adrianopelgroup.com. We have a lot of articles and reports and content on special economic zones. And I think the most interesting of them is the Open Zone Map, which is a separate website, openzonemap.com, which is an atlas of over 5,500 special economic zones across the world, which is a project we launched last year. And there you can see basically every zone on earth and see if it's a charter city, if it's a free zone, if it's a free port, if it's private or public. So if you really want to learn about zones and see where there's opportunities close to you, check out the open zone map. Amazing. Thank you so much for the conversation today and for sharing your wealth of information on this. It's super exciting topic. And I'm so thankful to be learning about it and be connected with you and everybody else in this space. So thank you so much. And I will talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you, Mikhail. It was an honor. Okay, I hope you guys enjoyed today's interview. I sure had a ton of fun recording it. Before you guys go, I want you to check out a newsletter that I'm just absolutely obsessed with right now. So my buddy Marco Wutzer was on the podcast for episode 137, and we talked about anything and everything to do with crypto. Now, I know quite a bit about crypto. I've been in the space for roughly five years now, and I've made a lot of money and I've lost a lot of money. And I really used to do these things on my own. I used to do my own analysis, my own research, et cetera, et cetera. But to tell you the truth, I don't have time for that. And I would have to spend all day long doing it. But when I met Marco, I really started diving into his work. And he runs a paid newsletter called Project Serenity. You guys can find out more about it at expatmoneyshow.com forward slash crypto. The newsletter is excellent. He discusses different projects. He has buy alerts, sell alerts. He shows you what they entered into a position at, what it should be sold at. And the response has been amazing and his track record has been phenomenal. So I want you guys to check it out. If you have experience in crypto, if you are trading, if you maybe are not trading yet, but you really want to trade, then these are the projects that you might want to get involved in, okay? It's it's not a how-to course by any means. It's an investment newsletter. It's con done completely digital, but the product is fantastic and everyone who's signed up has had a fantastic result with it. So all you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash crypto, and we will see you next Wednesday on the podcast. Enjoy your day. 
This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.